Welcome to Six Count. I'm your host, Sarah Wild, bringing you the voices and stories of jazz from Durham, North Carolina. Aaron, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And it's so sad that our first interview is going to be <laughs> the last for a little while because you're moving. Yeah, I am. And this is the last few days, last week? The last two weeks. I think I leave two weeks from yesterday. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And what is what has your last month been like? The last month has been weird. Uh, mm-hmm. for primarily because I had to move out of my house a little too early. Like I couldn't extend okay. my lease any longer. So while I'm saying goodbye to everybody and playing final gigs and wrapping up uh, teaching at NCCU, I've been like living out of a friend's house and kind of uh, essentially uh, couch surfing my way to, mm-hmm. a, to a new career. Um, but um, it's more than anything else, I think it's been like an, an emotional roller coaster. You know, I'm excited about uh, new opportunities, but I really love it here and I love the people here and it it, uh, it definitely is painful, you know, leaving. Yeah. And tell me about this new opportunity. I know you'll be the director of big bands and mm-hmm. applied saxophone and yeah. it, it looks somewhat close to where you grew up. It is. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, uh, I've taken a position at Washington State University, which is in Pullman, Washington. Um, I'm from Washington State originally, although Pullman is like almost literally as far from my hometown mm. as you can be. So um, it is drivable to my mom's house, but like by five hours. Okay. Um, but I can I actually considered going to the school when I was a kid. Uh, there was a great saxophone teacher named Greg Yazanitsky, and I'd spoken to him on the phone and ultimately ended up moving to Hawaii instead. But it, part of the reason I applied to the job was that I saw that he had retired. And um, it was almost on a whim, like, Oh, I, I'll apply for Yazaninsky's job. And as I made it through each step and got closer and closer and it got more and more real, uh, it simultaneously became more surreal because, yeah. you know, and to when I, when I finally got it, I, I almost didn't even know what to, what to make of the, <laughs> the opportunity. Like I did apply for this, but yeah, sometimes yeah. it feels like the opportunity is so nebulous and not like an actual reality yet. Yeah. You know, the, the, general consensus in higher ed is that you just have to apply for everything. Mm-hmm. And for some years I had been applying to like everything I was remotely qualified for. I applied for like community colleges in Tulsa and, you know, and then um, at the end of last year, I got what in a lot of ways was the position I'd always wanted, which was a, a full-time job at North Carolina Central University. And I basically stopped applying to other jobs. I think I applied mm. to like four things, only things that seemed like significant opportunities and, and a, you know, a level above what I was doing. Um, and so, uh, so as I, you know, made it through the, the steps on this, it was like a, um, I mean, I guess I was applying to things that um, fit my resume perfectly rather mm-hmm. than just applying to everything. So maybe it makes sense that I got more more traction that way. 
Yeah. And what do you know of the current faculty? So I, I've, you know, I've been out and had an interview with everybody. And by now I've actually been emailing, you know, the, the semester is about to start. So I've already been uh, in contact with students and talking about setting up auditions for big bands. Um, it is a big music faculty. It's a much bigger school than I've been involved in in the past. I think that there are more than 30 full-time music faculty. Wow. Um, and the student body itself is like 25,000 people. So it's a big school in a relatively small town. Um, so both of those things will be something of a, of a change of pace. Uh, the big band program has been around for a long time and it, uh, the school itself is just eight miles away, I think from the university of Idaho, which also has a big music program. And when I was a kid, they held a festival called the Lionel Hampton jazz festival, which was the Mm. biggest jazz festival west of the Mississippi river. And so all of my experience in Pullman as a kid was going to play at that festival a couple of years during high school. So I had, uh, you know, an awareness of the school and of the program, but it was, as I mentioned, far enough away from my hometown that I didn't go there all that often. But um, the... um, My interactions with the faculty at this school have been so overwhelmingly positive, which is frankly not always the case in academia these days. Mm. I think um, music faculties are often... Um, feel like they're defending their own little posi- uh, like uh, parts of the school, and so far I've gotten nothing but uh, love and friendship from everybody. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to to working with everybody there. Well, that's great to hear. You have a welcoming cohort to bring you in, and you also have a very sad farewell group, but yeah. that are wishing you the best along with the Eric Hirsch Quartet tomorrow mm-hmm. at Magnetic Sound Studios in Durham. Can you share about your work with Eric and? With the quartet over the years. Yeah. Um, when I first moved here, I, I can't remember how I met Eric and I've been trying to trying to think about it. I should I should ask him. He Mark maybe, of a long friendship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, I, I remember hearing him play in a couple of different groups like The Beast and Orchestra Gardell. And early on, I was like, man, that's a guy that I want to work with. Um, just, I mean, at the time, just from a musical standpoint, he was involved in so much of the hippest music in town. Um, and we became friends and I played uh, on a couple of shows. I, I subbed in a few of his bands. But um, sometime many years ago, uh, he uh, he said he wanted to form a quartet and he invited me to join as the saxophonist. And that was really one of my early great like honors in the area was to have him invite me to play. Um, Eric is a fascinating and very accomplished composer and arranger. And um, I wouldn't even try to, I mean, I guess he, his music fits into just generally modern jazz. Um, but um, he's, uh, he's got a real special gift for writing interesting um, harmonies and melodies, usually over um, very diverse like time signatures and time feels. And so every song that he writes is like a big adventure. He has a tendency to write really grandiose tunes also. <laughs> so it feels like a, an emotional journey every time that we play. But um, we've been together, gosh, seven years again. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, the, the, the time has flown by, but we, we recorded a record a couple of years ago called Distillation, like right before the pandemic. And... Um, uh, but of course, during the pandemic, we didn't get to play a whole lot. There were a couple of years there we played. Um, we just like jammed outside at Steve Kaufman's house a couple mm. of times. Um, but uh, we we rehearsed and had a celebration for Pete's birthday, for Pete Kimosh's birthday, the, the bass player, last uh, a couple of days ago. Mm. And then this will be our last show before before I move. 
I don't know if I actually address any more about the band. Yeah, I told you what Eric's music is like. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you've also played with the Mint Julep Jazz Band mm-hmm. with Laura Winley and the Repertory Orchestra with North Carolina. Can you share more about the ensembles that you've been with over the years and perhaps who's on your goodbye list? Uh, yeah, I actually, so the North Carolina Jazz Repertory Orchestra is a big band led by Jim Ketch, who was um, the professor of jazz studies at uh, UNC Chapel Hill for many, many years. He retired. Um, I think he t- taught there for 43 years and he just retired a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. And we had our, like my kind of farewell concert last night. Um, uh, that band has been around for, I, th- I think, 30 years, but I've been playing lead alto in that band for 10 um, and a couple of years before that band, before I joined that band, uh, Lucian Cobb and Laura Winley founded the Mint Julep Jazz Band, which is a um, an eight-piece swing band. And that band exists primarily for playing swing dances. So we play almost all music that is either transcriptions of music from the 30s and 40s or compositions by Lucian Cobb and Keenan McKenzie um, that fit really comfortably within that sort of like uh, genre. Um, and again, almost always with dancers in mind. Laura is, uh, Laura Wendley, who you mentioned, is our singer, fantastic singer. Uh, but she's also a competitive dancer. And mm-hmm. so this, this really is like, a, I think, a passion project for her in that respect. But as, um, as jazz musicians, it's like that was the real heyday of our music, at least as far as national popularity or international popularity is concerned. Um, so it's always a fun, you know, type of music to play she's also a great band leader so the everybody in that band is like we, it's been nothing but fun you know friendly uh gigs and um so all of those people will be on my on my goodbye list uh saying goodbye to the ncjro last night was really hard uh that was at the sharp nine at sharp nine gallery yeah uh jim has been um a real mentor to me and i think um uh i owe him a huge debt of gratitude um uh, but all along the process of me getting a master's and getting a doctorate, he was the one I always went to for advice. And he's also probably written me a thousand letters of recommendation. <laughs> so I'm uh, deeply in his debt on on that one. Um, but uh, he's still like my hero. He's, I, I think to myself often like um, that I, I need to take every opportunity to pick his brain about how to be a good, a good band leader. And um, it's part of the reason why I chose that kind of uh, school like my big applications have been for saxophone and big band and it's like watching Jim work has been a a big part of that hmm. and even though he's technically retired from UNC he's still so active in the yeah. jazz community and just seeing how he mentors younger students as well is really neat to see that he has been a mentor like for you for so many others he he's a legend I mean he like he really is people throw that word around but he's been teaching all over the southeast and all over the nation for many decades and he really built that that program I don't, I don't know what the jazz college scene was like when he got here I don't think that there were any jazz programs I think that that predates North Carolina Central's um, program and um I'd be pretty shocked if there was any jazz musician who's grown up in this area that doesn't list Jim as some sort of an influence. I mean, he really is an incredible force for mm. the music. We all we all owe him a lot. Yeah, I'd love to get him on Six Count too one day. I'll put in a good word. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, no problem. And you've been um, all over the universities in the Triangle too with your experience at Central and UNC and UNCG. 
And so I wanted to hear about your education journey, which also started in Hawaii. So I was curious both what brought you to Hawaii and then also later to Durham. Yeah, that's a that's a long, uh, it's like a 35-year story. Um, I'll sum it up. <laughs> we can break it down uh, into smaller pieces. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I left Washington when I was 18. I, you know, I mentioned that I'd looked at Washington State University and another school in Washington called Central Washington University. But my senior year of high school, my dad's job got transferred to Hawaii. He worked for mm. the military, worked for the Navy. And he was like, um, the rest of us are going to Hawaii. If you want to go for a year, you know, come and check it out. So it really twisted my arm on, on that one. I moved to Hawaii in 1998 and started school at the University of Hawaii as a music student. Um, and... From high school, maybe I was like, I just want to be a saxophone player. I, I remember mm. in high school thinking like, I'm I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the next Michael Brecker. Um, and at some point in time, I realized that uh, that <laughs> that's impossible. <laughs> uh, even Michael Brecker isn't the Michael Brecker uh, of my dreams. The Michael Brecker of my dreams. That'll be my autobiography. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I was uh, an undergrad at the University of Hawaii, and then I started actually my first master's degree at the University of Hawaii in musicology, like classical music history. And three years into that, my family left Hawaii. And uh, I was, you know, I was there almost 10 years and was basically ready to leave. When you tell people that, they always look at you like you're crazy. Like, like why would you want to leave? Yeah, it is absolutely a magical place. It's also many hours from anywhere mm -hmm. and small and packed and i loved it there and i still have dear friends there um but you do kind of like run out of stuff to n new things to do there and um uh my very best friend and i both were kind of like ready to go and we had friends a married couple who were having a kid who were moving here who um said if you guys want to move to the mainland and you don't know where you're going we're moving to this place called the Triangle, <laughs> um, and um, I, every time I, I tell people this, they uh, they laugh. But I met a number of people in Hawaii who were from here, and Interesting. universally, they were like, "Oh, I, I've always regretted leaving. Like, I've <laughs> always missed the Triangle." I mean, happy people living in Hawaii, they really, really loved it here. Really uh, talked it up. So um, I moved here in two thousand and seven still trying to finish a, a classical music history degree. But I very uh, quickly upon moving here, got to know um, students and faculty at NCCU, at North Carolina Central University. And um, long story short, decided to transfer to go to school there. I say transfer, I think I ultimately transferred one credit. As uh, it goes. You know, from um, from musicology to, to my jazz degree. Um, it was, uh, I, I still... Um, consider myself, I guess, like a, like a lapsed musicologist or something like that. I mean, I'm still constantly, you know, reading about the music and the history um, and classical music history in particular. Uh, got a book about Wagner in my car right now. Mm. Um, but uh, I, like I said, I'm always first and foremost been a saxophonist. And um, when I got to play with people at Central, I realized early on that there was something special going on there and something very different than I had ever experienced before. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, but like as a white kid from Seattle, uh, I remember thinking to myself, if I'm going to devote my life to playing like a black music, I should go learn it from black people. Mm -hmm. And not just, um, it's not just an issue of, of color, but one of culture, like central keeps alive the culture of the music, um, in a very special way that I don't know where else. I, I mean, I have no doubt there are many places you can get that sort of experience. I don't know where else you can get that experience. And um, it completely changed the way that I 
think about the music and approach the music and play the music and teach the music. So my first teacher there was Brian Horton. Rest in peace. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he was a, I mean, he, he, I think he changed the way I play jazz more than anybody else. I think easily he, he, he did. How so? Uh, so when I got there, my background, I mean, <laughs> I've already invoked the name of Michael Brecker. I mean, I, I grew up, um, like like a lot of young saxophonists, my first musical influence was Charlie Parker. Like people got mm-hmm. me the Charlie Parker Omni book. And so it was like bebop and forward. And um, uh, so I was obsessed in high school with Cannibal Adderley and John Coltrane and, and Michael Brecker and like modern saxophonists. Um, I was a um, not a super diligent practicer, but a voracious practicer at times as a kid. So I had a lot of technique when I got here. I was already a well-established jazz musician in Hawaii when I left. Um, and so when I came to Central, I got like a you know, like a graduate assistantship and stuff. And I got, got my school paid for. I could play. But Horton like saw to the center of my weaknesses and what was lacking in my playing like immediately. Mm. And I remember very clearly him. I mean, the phrase he used was like, you need more roots in your in your playing. Did you know what he meant by that? At the time, I suspected, but very quickly, it was like I started transcribing only Johnny Hodges, Benny Carter, Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster, Lester Young, Chew Berry, just like old school saxophone players. By and it wasn't, I, we didn't just stay there. I mean, by the end, I had to, I played on my final recital, not recital, but on my final um, juries, I played a Coltrane solo and a couple of more mo- modern things. But it was like um, blues and old school, like swing era, and even earlier, mm-hmm. Sidney Bechet and, and Louis Armstrong. I mean, not just saxophone players. Um, and uh, it really, um, yeah, it, it, I'd have to spend a lot of time, um, it, just like I don't know, introspectively thinking about all the ways that that's changed the way that I that I think about stuff now. Um, but I really uh, valued that experience, not just as a saxophone player. I also with with, with Dr. Horton, I studied um, uh, jazz arranging and jazz theory. And um, he, uh, after I graduated, two years after I graduated, he left to do his doctorate at North Texas. And uh, the head of the department at Central, Ira Wiggins, called me and asked if I'd like to interview to basically fill his position while he was gone. Seems like big shoes to have filled. It felt like really big shoes to fill. And um, that's actually been, um, that story uh, continues. Um, uh, So, uh, I mean, I I think we all knew that uh, that he uh, he intended to come back at some point in time. but I was super excited to teach. And that is where I figured out like that this is what I want to do. Mm. Uh, I had already been, a, I was a grad assistant in musicology and I had taught history classes. I taught big bands at the University of Hawaii. Um, but teaching specifically jazz theory, I had this one class uh, where leaving class I, one day, I was like, this is the most fun I've ever had. Um, I get paid for this. <laughs> I, yeah, I, it, it, it speaks to all my musical desires, all my nerdy desires. I mean, I felt <laughs> like standing at a board and writing things on a dry erase board. I felt like I was a wizard uh, casting spells <laughs> that turned into jazz on a piano and then seeing students get excited about it. I mean, that's such a, a, a cliche thing to say as a teacher, but it really is the most um, rewarding thing to see to see students get excited, no matter how old they are or what it is, um, to get excited about what you're talking about. So. I was like, okay, I want to do this. And it was already clear then 
that you basically have to have a doctorate to get a full-time job teaching mm. music. It's, I mean, there are plenty of people with master's degrees that get full-time jobs, but if you want to be competitive on the modern market, everybody has one. Mm. And, um, well, I, I mean, uh, everybody, uh, regardless of how well they play jazz, for instance, has some sort of a of a doctorate, and that's true in all the fields. It's like it's just like you know everybody gets that much schooling. So I started thinking a lot about like what I would do for a doctorate if I'm going to give this a shot. I needed to get a doctorate, and I actually had a lot of different. Um, I shouldn't say I have a lot of, I had a lot of different options, but I considered going back to musicology, considered composition. I ended up doing classical saxophone at UNC Greensboro, um, and. Uh, Briefly, it's like in academia, not unlike I think a lot of parts of the world, uh, you can either focus on one thing and try to be the very best at that one thing or try to be a jack of all trades. And I had always been that direction. I mean, the way that I was doing classical music history while trying to be mm -hmm. a jazz hit player before. Um, I'm interested in so many topics that it made sense to do that. Um, but saxophone has always been the center of it. So I had my my master's is like a um, jazz composition and performance at Central. And then I went and I did a, a DMA at Greensboro in classical saxophone performance. Um, and uh, when I got hired last year at Central, uh, Dr. Horton had just been made director of jazz studies. And it felt very much like I was going to get a second chance to go back and learn from him again. And I, mm. I was like, okay, because I, because he was such a, um, such a well of information uh, I've, I've, uh, I'm a fan of your podcast. I've listened to your previous episodes and, and, you know, Ernest Turner spoke very, um, admirably and admiringly of, of, uh, Horton's knowledge, but he really was an incredible source of, and, and, a, and a rare combination of wisdom and like musical acumen. He could, he could play with anybody, mm. but no matter how much nerdy classical stuff I brought him, he was on top of all of it always. So he set a very, very high standard. Um, and the first two months there were like the most fun, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and when he passed really suddenly, it was um, such a tragedy. And the area is going to feel those repercussions, I think, for a long time. There are mm -hmm. a lot of jazz musicians here, a lot of dedicated musicians and fans and educators. But he um, he took up a lot of space in a in a very powerful way, and mm -hmm. um, it'll be it'll, it'll be a while, I think, before we that all kind of shakes out. We all we all miss him. I mean, he was such an intrinsic part of the central community, but also in the Durham and Triangle community, where he was out there playing at the Kingfisher jazz jam mm -hmm. that he hosted. And so it wasn't this sort of, you know, cloistered way in the ivory tower, no. but he was there with everyone. And he was adamant that that was part of the job and part of the game is like, uh, you know, you can't, um, you can't only learn jazz in the classroom. People will say that in a disparaging way. And the fact is the classroom is a great place to learn all kinds of stuff about jazz. And jazz is more than just jam sessions. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's like uh, it's soundtracks and it's uh, American history and it's a bunch of other stuff. And there are a lot of reasons, I think, to to study it and why we as a country need to support it. Um, but as players, there is an active part of it where you have to learn by doing and you have to learn by um, communing with other musicians and learning from your elders. I mean, that's a huge part. Like the following in the tradition is a huge part of being a jazz musician and really always has been, even though we always remember those who have like made a big difference in the music or who we see as being like barnstormers or, 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 you know, the avant-garde, um, uh, you know, 
it's like Charlie Parker learned by listening to Lester Young and everybody that came after Charlie Parker learned by listening to Charlie Parker. And the, um, the bandstand is, is a unique place, you know, and he, in, when I first moved here, he already had a jam session going at Tallulah's in Chapel Hill. And that was like mm. one of the first, that's the first place I ever saw him anyway. It was at, at that jam session. Um, but I think that the Kingfisher, you know, uh, people like Al Strong and, and, Jeremy Bean Clemens mm-hmm. um, are out there trying to keep that alive really admirably. And, and there's a jam session at the Mary Lou uh, that uh, John yes, Brown and Duke. Duke lead, you know, so um, that we're, we're super lucky in, in this area to have so many dedicated musicians. Yeah. And are there any, I guess, life philosophies that uh, Dr. Horton gave you that you'll be applying in Pullman scene? Yeah. Um, let me try to narrow that down. You know, I think he he had this balance between Okay. He would say when when I had questions about music where I was like, oh, like, oh, how does this go? Or what is that person doing? Or whatever. Places in which I would be very inclined to give an academic response. And I'm thinking specifically, um, not to get too in the weeds, but like, uh, like how did uh, how did John Coltrane make that sound? Mm-hmm. And my response often would be like, "Oh, there's a tongue position thing, and a reed thing, and mm-hmm. an airstream thing, and his larynx, and you know." And Brian Horton had a way of being like, of pushing that aside and being like, "Let's go back to the source." He would use that phrase, "back to the source," and it was like going back to the record and listening to the record over and over and over again and imitating the record over and over and over again. That's not um, necessarily novel jazz advice, but he set that sort of example. But the balance is that on the other side of that, he was just as rigorous as anybody else was and could try to describe it in as specific terms as possible. Um, so he, he um, when I think about teaching now and when I... Um, interviewed at Washington State University. One thing that I brought up, and this wasn't like a plan, but the one of the bands that I guest conducted was playing an arrangement of um, Stolen Moments. Um, and I was like, okay, so you know, do you guys remember the record? And nobody did. <laughs> and I was like- Classic moments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was like, how, how, how have we gotten this far without listening to this record, you know? Um, and uh, that the importance of listening is easily lost in an academic setting, uh, which is weird, right? Like it's an oral form that we're doing here. And I think that there, I think that this is not, um, uh, I think that this is a result of, there's something about being in an academic setting where we are trying to articulate what we are learning from rather than just being listeners and and viewers and consumers or whatever. But as humans, we are um, communicative, social creatures and we learn so much by listening and watching and imitating you know mm. so uh i feel like i've gotten far off of your question already here but like uh um uh, the analogy that i always use and that so many always use is uh you i could teach you all the words and phrases of french and you're never going to sound like a french speaker unless you mm. actually just hang out there and in reality you'd be better off just being like um, abducted and kicked out of a van in Paris and having to hang out for a year. That would be fine. You know what I mean? Me. Yeah, yeah. I could figure out a way to, to survive. Uh, I, I read Orwell's down, down and Out in Paris. Um, uh, now, I just want to say, and I, th- I feel like that point gets made, 
if you added to that some great classes with some great teachers, it would be easier. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But a balance of the two. And he, there we go, back to Horton. Yeah. He he really embodied um, the use of both of those things um, rather than just relying on one or the other. And as a person who's been a lifelong student, that's kind of hard to find. I've had great teachers who really got a lot out of one or the other, but very few who who did both mm-hmm. so well. And a lingering question I have is you have so much experience in classical and jazz. Mm -hmm. Was it strategic to have this balanced, you know, repertoire of doing both or what went into those decisions? You, you referenced yourself as, you know, rather do the jack of all trades route. Yeah. I, um, it it was only strategic in, uh, um, in like the later stages. I loved classical music as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, okay. Kid. Kid was a long time ago now, right? Um, when I was in grade school, I was listening to like West Coast hip hop and then heavy metal. So I didn't grow up listening to to jazz or blues or, you know, I mean, I played music in church with my mom as a, as a kid and she was a piano, my mother was a piano player and a piano teacher. But by the time I was in high school, um, I had, I think because of band, I had gotten really interested in music and, um, so I was listening to band, but then that became listening to a lot of classical music. My mom did take me to some classical concerts, but I would hear classical music around the house a little bit. I also heard a lot of just like, you know, whatever popular music from the 70s and 80s. Um, but uh, I have identified myself as a jazz musician since probably, you know, like 11th grade, at which point mm. in time I'm sure I was terrible. But I certainly was completely sold on it because I was playing in maybe even earlier. As soon as I started playing in jazz band, I was like, this is the coolest thing. Um, But, you know, when I chose to do my master's in classical music history, it was because at that point in time, um, my my goals had been narrow. It was like, I'm just going to go to New York and be a great tenor saxophonist. And I had a, a lot of realizations. One that's a harder, less glamorous life than it sounds like. And already in the late 90s, it was clear, early 2000s, I guess, it was clear that that there wasn't as much money to be made in jazz and from jazz records. I remember I heard that a few of my heroes had like lost recording contracts. Mm. So I was like, okay, I've got to find something else to do than just playing jazz. Um, But it's got to be music related. And it was like, I love history. I love classical music. I loved the classes that I took uh, in classical music history. And I was taking classical saxophone lessons. I took classical saxophone lessons from like an early age and I loved it. I, I really, um, love so much music. So when it came down to, um, choosing a, a path for a doctorate, uh, like I said, I had these other options, but I'm best at playing saxophone. Mm. I will say my professional experience is at the time was very much pop oriented. I mean, it was jazz, blues. When I was in Hawaii, I played in reggae bands. I played in ska bands as a kid. Mm. Um, you I and Laura Winley uh, are both liked ska. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we actually, um, and and her and husband Lucian, Lucian did <laughs> too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we bonded early on. On We have a lot of similarities in that way. Um, uh, when I decided to do classical saxophone, it was strategic from the standpoint that I was trying to make myself as marketable as I could. But um, I will say, I, I was told in my interviews, I've, I've been a finalist for a couple of big jobs and they were mm-hmm. all jobs that were jazz and classical saxophone. And in a number of those interviews, I was told, I could, you know, they ask you like, why us? And at mm-hmm. some point in time, I was like, why me? Yeah. And what I was told over and over again was everybody says that they play both of these things 
but none of them really do. And uh, the reason is that it takes years of love and dedication to really want to be good at a thing, especially a thing that is as hard as jazz and classical saxophone are. And um, I think it's, you know, nobody wants to make like value judgments, but both of those uh, genres demand a lot of discipline and a lot of virtuosity. And they have long traditions of performance, even classical saxophone. I mean, it's like in the classical world, compared to the violin, the saxophone's brand new. And, we, and the classical saxophone is still not super sure if it's like a clarinet or a flute or <laughs> something totally different or a voice or something. Um, but um, I, uh, I've always loved it. And uh, so I was excited to do it. I will say that when I went and auditioned uh, as a person with musicology experience and classical performance experience, I sent in a, a tape and introduced myself uh, to a man who became another great mentor to me. So I'll, I'll name him uh, Dr. Steven Stusek. I mean, he is named Dr. Steven Stusek. I'm not naming him that. I'm giving his name. <laughs> For the purposes of the but podcast. At, yeah. But at first, uh, he was like, look, if you're just some jazz player that wants a piece of paper that says classical saxophone on it, then forget about it. Hmm. Um, and I think that's because that's common. Like I said, everybody's trying to get doctorates now. And I've had students that are like, I think I might try to do the classical doctorate thing too. I'm like, have you ever done it before as an undergrad? I'm like, no. It's mm. like, well, then why do you think you should be able to get into a doctoral program doing that thing? Right. And um, now I will say I uh, wrote a, um, a sincere and humble email to Steve saying like, no, I, I want to learn this thing and I want to not be like a jazz imposter. But to him, it was still clear that I sounded like a jazz player, even with a lot of like experience and time spent on the instrument. And then, or that is uh, playing classical saxophone. But um, the first semester of my study was 100% focused on don't be obviously a jazz saxophonist. Hmm. To jazz players, I mean, in the jazz community, I was definitely known already as a guy who played a lot of classical. It was actually part of uh, Ira Wiggins asking me to teach. He was like, I know you do a lot of classical and we need to teach our kids classical. So there are like levels of, of this sort of uh, thing. Um, but I spent about six months only listening to classical saxophone and only practicing classical saxophone. Previously, a lot of my classical um, study would be listening to singers and violinists and um, trying to sort of transcend the instrument or something like that. But I was like, I need to know this genre inside and out and by the end of my semester i had to do a what's called a, a continuation jury it's basically like um you get one semester to prove yourself and if you don't pass they can just kick you out yeah. i don't know how often people actually get kicked out but um it's enough to scare you well yeah and they didn't even i i've uh, i've always been uh worried that i suck so i i was like i'm gonna practice <laughs> super hard and i was i was so busy but practicing all the time anyway at the end of the semester um steve was like hey man you don't sound like a jazz player anymore which weirdly a was a grand compliment, compliment. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah if someone else had said that i would be like how dare you yeah. but uh no and then uh you know so um so anyway it's like now you know half my practice time is classical related i spend a lot of time transcribing music of composers that i like that didn't write for classical saxophone um writing it for saxophone i'm i've been working for quite some time on the music of olivia messian who's like a favorite composer of mine um so uh, it was strategic at the end, but no, this is something I really, I really love. Hmm. I'm curious, what's going to be on your playlist as you drive or fly out there? <sighs> Listen, I'm going to be honest. I've got a bunch of Star Trek podcasts <laughs> saved up. Uh, that's literally true. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> um, you know, uh, in the world of podcasts, oh, I'm on a podcast. It is so easy to listen to podcasts and I love podcasts. And as a musician, it is essential that I fill my ears with music mm. and I have to like fight the podcast urge a lot. Um, so so you're uh, gonna indulge. It, well, you know, the thing is, um, it's like, uh, it's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put down podcasts. It's, it can be so um, intellectually fulfilling and satisfying to listen to, to podcasts. And so there are a lot of podcasts on the, on the playlist. Um, I, uh, I want to, I, I've taught a lot of saxophone, but I've only led a handful of big bands. I mean, I've, I've like directed big band quite a bit, but in comparison to how much saxophone I've taught, that's the part that I feel like I need to make sure and be, um, the absolute best that I can be. And I've got an idea of like repertoire that I want to have this band play. A lot of that'll be, um, determined more by hearing the band once I get there. I mean, we've got, uh, auditions coming up in the middle of August. I'm super looking forward to hearing that the band sounded fantastic. Uh, when I was, when I was there in, I think it was, I think I interviewed in March. Um, so, uh, the playlist won't sound as, as, uh, exciting. This is not my artistic advice playlist, but I've got a <laughs> bassy chairman of the board. The blues and Hoss flat is the first track on that record. I want to play that. Um, they've got a lot of Alan Baylock's charts in their, uh, library. So I've got an Alan Baylock record. And then, um, Two composers that I really love now are, I mean, everybody's loved Maria Schneider for a long time, I guess, great jazz arranger. And then Miho Hazama is um, uh, a composer and arranger who I think, I think she's actually the leader of the Dutch Metropole Orchestra now. Um, but I've got a couple of her records. That's partially as a aspiring big, big band director, but also as a composer. I, I arrange a lot and her stuff is kind of the, my favorite new new jazz there i mean darcy james argue writes amazing stuff but it's like uh miho swings super hard so um that's that's the stuff i've been uh really listening to well thanks for those recommendations absolutely (laughs) (laughs) and i wanted to go back to something you said about how you're always worried that you might suck which is hilarious as an you know from this side of the table where it's like how could you think that you're excellent but i think it seems like a common fear as a musician and artist where you're just like, am I a competent human being? Do I have anything to offer? Then it seems like other times you can be soaring, like I'm really doing the music. So what have you found as ways out of those like brain tunnels that you get into? Yeah. uh, You know, like the imposter syndrome is, is, is real. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think uh, first of all, I think, to be a good musician, you have to be self-critical. Um, you know, I think when you're young, when I was young, I was like good at some stuff and people were like, ooh, that's good. And I was like, cool, I'm gonna do that more. Mm. Um, but then uh, as I played with more and more musicians who were way better than me and got depressed, it was like, hey, maybe instead of trying to figure out, like I would tell myself, but I'm good at this to feel better. And it was like, maybe instead you should figure out how they're better than you and then go mm. learn that, you know? Um, and th- that like maturing moment, I don't, I actually remember a, a kind of a specific moment of having this crisis where I was like, oh no, this person's way better than I am. And Let me just quit forever now. <laughs> I mean, k- kind of, because it's like, uh, as a kid, I, at least, Admittedly, I, w- I was definitely partially doing it because it was part of my like status at school or whatever, you know. And I, pl- I played at a at a high school jazz festival in Auburn, Washington. And um, man, I wish I could find out who this 
girl was. And I don't remember what school she was from, but she was just way better than me. And I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? There are people out there that are better than I am. And it was like a mature voice showed up in my head and was like, how is she better than you? Go learn all that <laughs> stuff. Maybe ask her, you know? Um, anyway, so in college, you spend all your time being like, what do I suck at? How can I get better at that thing? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's that's why college music takes the love out of, out of music for a lot of people. More than that, it's like you're just doing it all the time as opposed to just as a as a hobby. Um, so uh, for me, long term, what has worked best is uh, just saying to myself, however good you are right now, you're that good. You're that good and no better and no worse. You are whatever you are right now. Mm. And you can't do anything about like the past and what got you here, but you have the chance right now to make sure that you're better tomorrow than you were today. And as long as you're, do, you, it's like you can do that or you can quit. Mm. You know, um, this isn't the most pep talky way of doing it, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> doing it right. But um, I, I've many times been like, uh, been like, okay, well, like I just need to find more stuff that I suck at. And then go eradicate those weaknesses. And it works. It's it's fulfilling. I mean, man, I'm saying this way in a way that sounds uh, depressing. But really, one of the wonders of being a musician is I, I think that what makes us feel good about ourselves often is like, um, accomplishing some sort of a goal, feeling like we've like we've done something with ourselves, and sometimes it's the dishes, and sometimes it's like going for for a jog, whatever that is. Um, uh, I have no idea, but um, uh, you know, you're never a perfect musician, and so you can always go put a little bit more work in and get a little bit more out of it. And mm-hmm. if you view it and live it in those small pieces, it's great. Um, I am very, very fortunate to be surrounded by astounding musicians and you just can't help but compare yourself to to them. And you should, I mean, there's sometimes like, don't compare yourself to anybody else. Like you're, you're beautiful on your own or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> I know what you mean, but also as a professional, I need to like, you know, be trying to get better or whatever. So, um, you know, one of your previous guests on this podcast is a very dear friend, Keenan McKenzie. Mm-hmm. And we're very different saxophone players, very, uh, close friends might meet him for a coffee later. Uh, and it's like playing in mint julep. He's just the king of swing music. He play, I mean, it's a, he eats it and breathes that sound and that style. And so all of mint julep is me and everybody else being like, wow, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I worry that I, um, uh, again, maybe this will actually get me to answer your question. I worry that I, um, suck in like a, oh no, if somebody's better than me, I'm gonna fail or something like that. But the evidence is all around me that I'm not failing. Like uh, mm-hmm. I've still paid all my bills only uh, only playing music. And I just have to like kind of put that in the right part of my head. There are times when I feel good about my playing, not as many as I would like. I know though from talking to great professionals that it's the same game for all of those yeah. people. Very few people feel great about what they're doing all the time. And I think that it's like a self-fulfilling or maybe it's a reverse self-fulfilling prophecy. If you felt great about what you were doing all the time, you wouldn't work hard to get mm. better, you know? So it's like embracing, now this is a Thomas Taylor quote here. You gotta, you gotta embrace the struggle, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and when you really do embrace the struggle, it's like, no, this is like part of who I am as the guy that's working on getting better. And I'm also hearing it's not a focus on the absence. I don't have this, but the opportunities of let me go get better at that. Yeah. And 
I feel like that seems to be a bit more out front than it's just like, oh, failure is happening to me. I yeah. have nothing to do with. That's a that's a really good point. I mean, I mean that, that just I can just hear my father's voice in my head there. It's like, oh, really? Are you just going to sit here and complain about it then? Or are you going to go <laughs> and and uh, and do something about it? Um, and I, I think you know most students have some friend that they know who just seems naturally super talented. And I do know people who admittedly just seem to have some incredible sort of gift, but 99% of what we do is something that you can like, maybe, maybe you'll, I mean, I'm never going to sound exactly like Keenan does. Um, and I don't need to, there's already a Keenan, but it's like, I can always get a little mm-hmm. bit more of that and a little bit more of the, this is, this is for Keenan, a little more Keenan, a little bit more Coltrane, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, two of the towering uh, tenor saxophone figures. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, big fan of Keenan McKenzie yeah. <laughs> and also your music. Um, if you were to go back and talk to a younger version of yourself, you're just moving to the triangle. How do you make the most of your time here? Whoa. <laughs> I uh <laughs> some of the answers to that. I think I think musically I've done a relatively good job, you know. I, I like uh, I got to know I'm socially gregarious and so I like went out and met people and got to know people and um you know I mentioned hoping that you know that I would get to work with Eric early on and then getting to work with Eric. The same thing was true with Jim. Um uh I went and saw big band concerts that Jim was in. I was like, "Man, someday I would love to be in his orbit." And now we're very close friends. Mm-hmm. Um so from that standpoint, I think I've I've done a good job. It's been circuitous at times, but it's hard to really regret that. You know, I mean, it's like part part. I think part of my success has been I didn't just go straight through school. Like if I had known at the beginning, oh, I just want to teach saxophone in college, I wouldn't have all the the bandstand experience that I have and traveling experience that I have and stuff. So um, uh, even though in some ways I feel like I'm starting the game late, um. I, I, you know, I'd be hesitant to take any of that away. Um, there were early, it's outside of music. There are relationships I would have avoided uh, <laughs> if I, just one really. Um, but, uh, you know, it's like, I've been here so long and it doesn't feel like a long time, but I've been here almost as long as I lived in Washington as a kid. So it's like, mm. this has almost been like my, you know, longest place. Um, and the triangle's been really, really good to me and I've learned uh, I've learned a lot here, so I'm not sure that I would really uh, try to take back any of yeah. it or change any of it. Well, it's been great to hear more of your story. Anything else you'd like to share with the Six Count community as your sign-off? Uh, no, uh, no. Thank you for doing this podcast. I think it's great that someone has enough interest in the local jazz scene to do it, and it's been uh, wonderful listening to the other interviews with my uh, my fellow compatriots, maybe as a sign off to the to the area, I've really loved it here. I feel very, very fortunate to have been involved with all of these musicians, and I'm going to take my love and care of everybody with me wherever I go in the in the future. Aaron, thank you so much. Washington State is so lucky to have you. <laughs> thank you, Zara. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Six Count. I'm Zara Wild. 
You can let us know what you thought of the episode or recommend a guest by emailing us at sixcountpodcast at gmail.com or by finding us on Twitter or Instagram at sixcountpodcast. If you'd like to support our work in telling the story of jazz in Durham, you can make a gift to the show by following the link in our episode description. Thanks for listening.